So here we are at the end of day two. You've all survived. You've succeeded by the fact that you're still here. Some of you thought this day would probably be easier than yesterday. Maybe for some of you it got harder. So it can take a while to settle into retreat. So much for our expectations. I'm sure many of you imagined days of great serene bliss and <laughs> enlightened floating days down through the sand dunes and Well, we still have many days left, so who knows? There's one of my favorite ads that somebody sent me. It's an ad for Ultra Meditation CD set, which I thought you might like to know about. There's a woman sitting in meditation. She's levitating, and at the top it says, in 28 minutes you'll be meditating like a Zen monk. <laughs> That's pretty quick. <clears throat> second page is push button meditation the five level ultra meditation system for transcendence peak experiences and discovering your place in the universe <clears throat> I'll leave the sign up sheet over here the <laughs> and then if some time later somebody actually got me the CD and I listened to it it's kind of disappointing <laughs> There's another ad that I like to reflect on. It's a picture of a beautiful Dominican Republic beach with a white sand beach and palm trees and a kind of turquoise blue sea. And it says, here I feel free. Here I feel free. And I always wonder what happens when they get home. So here we are on a Dharma retreat. And Dharma teachings are good news. They really are good news. Even though it can seem sometimes that we struggle and face difficulties, face ourselves, face hard parts in ourselves. The good news is you're on a path, you're on a journey, a path of liberation, a path that ends with the possibility of freedom, of awakening. The Buddha, in one of his many wonderful discourses, he said, Luminous is this mind brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind. So that's what we're doing here. We're cultivating the mind to rest and abide in that luminous, radiant part of our nature. And the reason we're not able to abide, um, to rest there, is because of these visiting uh, attachments, tendencies of mind, habits that obscure our basic nature. So I see our Dharma practice twofold. One is to understand the truth of who we are, and two, to understand everything which obscures that. And these first few days, maybe you're resting more in the obscurations. You're resting more in what gets in the way, 
you know, these teachings are pointing to this radiant, pure, compassionate heart that really is the essence of who we are. How come we don't, we don't reside there? So I'm partly going to understand and talk about what obscures, what gets in the way. And really the, 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 the Buddhist path is really a path of movement from that place of confusion and suffering and ignorance to one of clarity, to one of ease, to one of uh, wisdom, kindness. Thich Nhat Hanh put it this way, he said, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available, please help yourself. And the great Sufi poet Hafiz puts it like this, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. You have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard for God. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun to me. Let's start laughing and drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them. Mix them. So this is what we're here to learn. To see that every moment here on the retreat in our lives is an opportunity to see when we're caught and when we're free and how we move from one to the other. How to disengage these patterns that we get into that cause suffering, that cause us pain. And the good news is this isn't some new age philosophy. You know, it wasn't born out of Esalen 30 years ago. It's been practiced for, for millennia. It's been practiced by millions of people through the centuries in many continents. The Buddha said, if I didn't think it was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. If I didn't think it was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. And we already have the most important quality or jewel or asset that we need on the path. What do you think that is? It's the quality of awareness, the quality of this innate, wakeful quality of the mind. It allows us to see when we're caught, when we're obscured, when we're in suffering. It allows us to see the causes, allows us to see what allows us to be free. So sometimes when we come on retreat, as you've noticed, one of the first things we encounter is another aspect of uh, the Buddha's teaching, the, Buddha, the Buddha's foundation teaching that really encompasses the whole of the path is the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth that there's a cessation of suffering, that liberation is possible, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering. In the beginning, we often notice the first truth. There is suffering. There is unsatisfactoriness. The word he uses is dukkha, uh, one of those complex Pali words, but um, basically means suffering or unsatisfactoriness. You may have noticed that your experience may have been quite unsatisfactory recently, not that satisfying. Dukkha is, speaks to the objective pain in the world, the suffering, the oppression, the war, injustice. 
old age, sickness, death, but it also speaks to the personal suffering, the suffering that we create through our own misunderstanding, the the suffering that arises out of the way that we have contention with reality, how we resist what's true, how we fight with the truth of the moment. It's the suffering that comes, as the Buddha said, when we don't get what we want, when we lose what we have, or when we're separated from that which we love. How many times today have you not got what you want? And it's caused suffering, caused some pain. So it's important not to judge ourselves for suffering. Sometimes we, we can add suffering onto suffering. The Buddha talked about as, as the, original, the initial suffering, physical pain, mental pain, pain of loneliness, sadness, loss. And then we add another uh, arrow or dart, and we give ourselves a hard time for suffering. Oh, I should be over this already. I should be further along the path. Look at everybody else. They look so happy and Buddha-like. How come I'm the only schlump that's just kind of, you know, putzing around, not, not knowing what I'm doing? So I want to speak to some of the ways that uh, suffering appears uh, for us on retreat. The first things that we might notice, uh, particularly as we as we move into, and Jack spoke to some of these things, but I want to reiterate some of these things. Um, the way we move from our lives into retreat, they're two very different modes. One is very fast, busy, complex, involves a lot of thinking, planning, and the retreat life is very simple, very stripped bare, very quiet, slow. And so sometimes it feels like the freight train of our life slams into the meditation hall. And we get to see and feel the way we've been living our lives, the habits, because our habits follow us like a shadow. One of the things we notice um, for many of you, and people, some people talked about today, is this quality of restlessness, of agitation, of wanting to jump out of your skin, wanting to jump off your zafu and run outside, run to the nearest coffee bar, run to (laughs) the nearest burger joint, anything, but to be with myself and be with all these people and be with the silence and the stillness and just get me out of here. You know, sometimes, I know people talked about this, they suddenly find themselves in the refrigerator and they they were meditating at home and suddenly, bang, the agitation, the restlessness just propelled them out So you might notice that sometimes. So I want to read something um, that speaks to a little about why we might be feeling a little restless. It's called Sweet Nothing. How have you been? Somebody asks. Busy. How's work? Busy. How was your week? Good. Busy. (laughs) You name the question, busy is the answer. Yes, yes, I know we are all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly there are more interesting, more original, and more accurate ways to, dis- to answer the question, how are you? Like, I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my house. I'm itchy. Yet busy stands alone as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I am busy is a short way of saying or implying my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you therefore should think well of me. Have people always been this busy? 
Did cavemen think they were busy too? Boy, this week's crazy. I've got about 10 caves to draw on. <laughs> can, I meet you by the, can I meet you by the fire next week? I have a hunch that there is a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase in busyness. Look at us. We're all pros now at hailing cabs, making Xeroxes, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go cup in hand. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils. Sound familiar? High not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, and crossing off. As kids, our stock answer to most every question, what did you do at school today, or what's new, was nothing. <laughs> In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. Then somewhere on the way to adulthood, we, took, we each took a 180-degree turn. We cashed in on nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should re try reintroducing it to our grown-up vernacular. Nothing, I say it a few times. And I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, <laughs> zenish. Nothing. Now I'm picturing emptiness a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing, nothing, nothing. How do we get so far away from it? So maybe you're feeling like an over-caffeinated, hyperactive gerbil <laughs> sometimes when you're sitting, or at least your mind might be, and sometimes your body. And then we come to this retreat, and we have a very full schedule of nothing. You sit and do nothing, you walk and do nothing, and then you do it again. And then you do it in the afternoon. It's all very busy. In the Wall Street Journal on some time ago, there's this um, article on what's called the Type A bathroom. And um, it's uh, chronicling this guy called Greg Shankman who runs a company and it says, with a BlackBerry, two mobile phones, three office computers, and wireless internet for his car, Greg is never far from his work. But recently, the CEO of a San Francisco-based company decided to wire the final frontier, his bathroom. When Mr. Shankman answers a speakerphone in his shower, the water automatically shuts off. He can open the front door for deliveries while shaving. He's also put the finishing touches on a waterproof computer that will let him answer emails from his sauna. I took Gates a little too, too li literally, he says, the flow of information never stops. So it's come to this, the humble bathroom, along a place of refuge and solitude. And so it goes on to uh, talk about different things that people are doing in their bathrooms. Um, he also has the vanity mirror also doubles as a TV. And it has the ticker tape of the stock um, <laughs> prices running along the bottom. And, and there was an interview with people who had uh, done this to the bathrooms, and 28% of them had confessed to checking their emails while sitting on the john. So, you know, we live in this very insane culture that values productivity and busyness and doing and striving and getting ahead. And what it, what's the byproduct of that? What's the residue of that? Is we feel it when we come to be quiet. We feel the reverberation of agitation, of restlessness. It's very hard to simply be 
you know, we've lost the human beings, we've become human doings. So no wonder it's challenging to come on a retreat. Pasteur, the French philosopher, once said that most of the world's problems would be solved if people could learn to sit by themselves in a room for a few hours. And that was many years ago, and it's how true it is today. So, aside from the busyness of our lives, we also get restless by, by the things that our mind gets up to. Our mind creates a lot of restlessness through uh, forward thinking, future thinking, fear thinking, catastrophizing. You know, how we just seem to like to dwell on all those things that could go wrong, all the things that terrible could happen that we could lose. And it creates agitation, it creates nervousness. Or we, we dwell on the things in the past that we feel bad about, and we keep dwelling on them, we create agitation. Or we just believe in our minds. You know, that saying from Mark Twain, the worst things in my life never actually happened. But he thought about them a lot. Natalie Goldberg once wrote, stress is an ignorant state. It believes that everything is an emergency, that nothing is that important. So we amp ourselves up with thinking, with fear thinking, with, with planning, with catastrophizing. And the practice of mindfulness is inviting us to be with every experience. How is it to bring a spacious, mindful, kind attention to that agitation, to that restlessness? It just suggests that our system is out of balance. Energy is too high, mind is too busy, we need to calm, we need to bring some stillness. That's why we emphasize stillness of the body, emphasize attuning to the stillness in the room. Or when you're walking, attuning to the stillness of the desert. We're in this very beautiful, still location. We're sitting on an old ocean bed. You know, imagine how still it is sitting on the bottom of the ocean. You know, we're sitting on the, on, the, on the bottom of an old lake or ocean bed here. So when the mind's restless, see if you can bring some soothing, some calming to the body. Sometimes giving the mind a lot of space, uh, like giving a you know, a kind of pent-up stallion, a wide pasture to roam in. Another thing that's very useful is to really use uh, nature. You know, nature is so uh, grounding in that way. I do a lot of my practice outside. I lead wilderness retreats, partly because the natural world supports so many of the qualities that we're developing here in meditation in a very, na very natural, effortless way. So I want to read a poem from Mary Oliver that just, um, just brings in this quality of nature and how, how it can um, really touch us deeply. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers, all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened. When I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands and the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain, rising, and in fact it became difficult to tell 
just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds and the perfectly blue sky. All of them were singing, and of course so it seemed was I. Such soft and solemn perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. And one of the things they say about it that's true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. It is spring, it is morning, and there are trees near you. And does your soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. So you can hear in those words, and she's such a beautiful poet, that the, the, the quietness, the stillness uh, exudes. So another thing you may be noticing as you uh, sit as you're still maybe feeling the residue of tiredness. We come from lives that are generally um, very busy and, uh, <laughs> and complex. <laughs> Lives are full of multitasking. And <laughs> sometimes hard to keep out the intrusions, the outer obstacles. So. <laughs> Beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> So there's the agitating part of our experience, and then there's the, the dulling part of our experience. Sometimes, I know some of you have been talking about feeling sleepy and dull and foggy and uh, missing your cappuccino in the morning. And um, it's just another one of the, the common obstacles to practice is the, the tendency towards sleepiness or dullness, often because of the busyness and the way that we push ourselves in our lives or underslept. Um, sometimes it just, it's, a, it's an adjustment to come into the subtlety of meditation, the subtlety of mindful awareness. It takes some time to, to meet the subtlety of the objects. We're used to such an overstimulated environment that can take a while to kind of settle down, to tune in. And for the mind that's, busy to, that's used to stimulation, comes to the retreat and it's like, breath and footsteps? Forget it, I'm going to sleep. You know, this is really boring. And it takes a while to uh, refine our attention, to bring it down to a more subtle, uh, subtle, appreciative level. So when this, you know, so, so the, the restlessness and the sleepiness, they're just ways our energy gets in balance. With the restlessness, we need to bring calm. With the sleepiness, we need to energize. We need to sit more upright, need to bring in a little more attention. Paying attention to sleepiness itself can be interesting. Sometimes we, we fight sleepiness and dullness so much because we're attached to clarity. 
We like being clear. That's why we drink so much caffeine. So how is it to be sleepy? How is it to be a little foggy? Practicing when we're a little drowsy can actually be very sweet if we're not resisting it. So it's again, is we can exp- this, this sleepiness and dullness can be suffering if we're resisting and fighting it, or it can just be another experience, another phenomena that's appearing in our experience. How is it to practice in a way that's soft and a little fuzzy? It's actually very sweet if we're not attached to the clarity. And you can do things to energize, open the eyes, you can stand, you can do walking meditation, you can use noting practice, there's many ways that we'll talk about to bring energy. Um, Sometimes we go to sleep because we don't want to be here. We don't want to be with ourselves. We don't want to face the emotions that may come up. Sometimes we go through our life so busy we just don't check in with ourselves. And we come to retreat and we have to do a little stock take. Like, oh, this is how I'm feeling. Oh my God, I'm carrying so much grief and sadness and loss about the way I live my life or all the things that have been happening that I haven't had time to feel. And there's no way to go to the refrigerator here, um, except for soy milk, which isn't so interesting. <laughs> I got a note the other day that said, is it okay to eat chocolate? And first I wanted to say, no, you should give it up to the teachers. <laughs> and I restrained myself, and I said, you can eat chocolate as, under two conditions. One, that you do it mindfully, and two, you enjoy it. So with, with, with the dullness and energy, um, usually with the combination of silence, concentration, just the perseverance with the practice over time builds energy, builds the, the energy needed to practice. And again, with anything that arises in your practice, whether it's uh, these things that I'm talking about that are known as hindrances or any other obstacles that you might encounter, the key point in, in practice is it's not so important what's actually happening. It's how you're relating to it. Restlessness isn't a problem. Dullness isn't a problem. Cell phones ringing aren't a problem unless we make it a problem. So the key, to, the key difference between suffering and freedom is how we relate to each moment. Are we resisting and fighting and complaining that we're restless and tired? cell phones are going off, that people are breathing loudly, or are we just meeting it? Oh, this, just this, just tiredness, just restlessness. Restlessness feels like this. Agitation feels like this. That's the invitation of mindfulness practice to meet our experience as it is. Very simple, not easy. Very simple, not easy. That's why it's a practice. So the second of the Noble Truths the Buddha talked about really is an essential part of the teaching. The causes of our suffering, the causes of our self-created suffering, the ways that we don't do what I just mentioned where we actually don't meet what's happening with openness and acceptance and patience, but we're in contention with the truth, we're in contention with our experience. usually in the form of resistance, hatred, or with grasping, wanting something different, wanting something better. So first I want to talk about this um, experience of aversion which manifests in many different ways. 
It, fundamentally, it's a simple resistance to the moment. Simple not wanting what's happening to be happening. But we, f- we experience it in two ways. Um, either th- in, a, in a more fearful kind of way, which is where we recoil, we move back, we avoid, we escape, we deny, we back off from what's happening. Or we move towards it with a form of anger, hatred, resistance, aversion, rage, complaining, bitterness, grumpiness, pushing it away. So we either avoid or push away when we don't like something, when we don't want something to be happening. We can see this on a a global scale, wars, oppression, the war in Iraq, form of violence and oppression, aversion of hatred, greed. We can see it in the fences that are going going up along our borders. Fear, not wanting. And the aversion that happens in our own minds is not separate from the wars and the hatred and the oppression and the racism that's happening in the world. Just notice what happens in your mind when you come into the room and someone's taken your zafu. Or even if they just moved it six inches. You know, the whole mind state can flare up. Fear, anger, how dare they, indignance. I was reading this uh, article um, from an English newspaper from The Independent um, called Privet Wars, Privet Grief. And it's about these suburban uh, wars that go on. Um, you know, in England, houses are much more compact and uh, gardens are more compact. And there's a lot of strife goes on between neighbors about uh, hedgerows, and the planting of uh, leylandi trees, uh, which grow really tall in obscure light. And this particular very quiet, quaint um, English country village, uh, these two neighbors had been at loggerheads for years over uh, the size of the hedgerow and uh, the tree in the, in the front garden, and ended up, um, they both, uh, they killed each other, basically, over, over, over a little hedgerow. You know, so this is, this is where... You know, these seeds of mild irritation and annoyance and frustration can grow, and it can end in really tragic consequences. So on the retreat in these last couple of days, you may have noticed a little bit of aversion. Anybody notice aversion? A little resistance to something that wasn't quite right, something that wasn't quite to your liking. Maybe people had aversion to the weather. I'm sure you all came with your shorts and your t-shirts and your, you know, your tropical gear and here we are, it's you know, almost freezing and it's hailstoning today. <laughs> Maybe a little aversion arising to the cold. What's interesting to notice about when we have aversion or desire for something, and particularly with aversion, we think, oh, this is unpleasant, the hail is unpleasant, the cold is unpleasant. And we think it's in the object. We think it's objectively true that the hail's a bad thing. It shouldn't be happening. It's April. But some people might be loving the hail. So that the, the, the aversion isn't in the object. It's in our own minds. And it's good to notice that, to notice that it's a relative perception. We may have aversion to the way our minds are. We sit down and we have to be with them. Crazy, wild, busy, relentless, 
I think there's a study came out that we think 60 or 70,000 thoughts a day. That's a lot of thoughts. It's about one a second. So if you had this idea that meditation was about being quiet and not thinking, wrong planet. Sometimes we have aversion to what's happening emotionally, to difficult emotions that arise. So what do we do? Instead of feeling them, we think about them. We analyze. We try to fix ourselves. We try to do anything but feel them, try to do anything but be in our body. And we might have aversion to the food or to vegetarian food. You know, where's my steak? You know, where's my burger? Where's my bacon and eggs in the morning? There was one yogi at IMS uh, brought a microwave oven and a, a chicken. <laughs> it was a dead chicken. <laughs> and thought that he could cook the chicken in his room and nobody would know. Of course, it smelled a little bit. And <laughs> some people had desire, some people had aversion over it. <laughs> or maybe you've had a little aversion to all these Buddhas sitting here. Maybe someone's been breathing a little too loud. Or someone's been fidgeting too much next to you. Or someone's had the audacity to cough while we're meditating or wear nylon clothing, <laughs> or wear two brightly colored socks. It's amazing what the mind fixates on, isn't it? I had this whole story on, on retreat uh, one year because this guy was wearing really bright fluorescent socks. <laughs> and I didn't think he should be doing that. <laughs> like, you're wearing bright orange on a retreat? Like, come on. I once sat next to a, to a friend of mine, uh, well, he wasn't a friend then, but um, who uh, had really loud breathing. It was a three-month retreat, and I was right next to him, and and uh, turned out he had, and he, I had a lot of aversion, uh, kind of homicidal aversion, you know, like you just, <laughs> you just want to wring their neck, you know, and stuff things up their nose, and... <laughs> why we encourage you not to write notes to each other because it's very easy to get lost in your reactivity it's called yogi mind where the littlest thing like the, you know someone's nylon jacket causes you to just you know just get mad you know it's not really a big deal you know someone wearing a nylon jacket or breathing too loudly but on retreat it become it becomes a really big thing because with the mind's got nothing else to do and it fixates we see the fixating quality of mind, how that fixation causes suffering. Notice when you're in that state, what it feels like. Usually we're lost in the object. We're blaming, we're complaining, we're moaning, we're, you know, they shouldn't be, blah, 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 blah. Notice what that feels like. It's actually very unpleasant. It's contracted, it's separate, it's righteous, but it's not happiness, it's not peace. It's not the piece of the Buddha was talking about. It's called suffering. So again, without judgment, just it's when we notice the suffering nature of our experience, it's easier to let it go. First, we need to bring mindfulness to that aspect. So everything that arises here, as I've said, is a vehicle for your practice. 
as a vehicle to see if we can understand, to be with it, to let it go, with suffering. I was once on a retreat in India, and uh, in Bodhgaya, and it was um, a beautiful place. It's a Thai temple. It's um, a little too much concrete for my liking, but um, uh, basically a beautiful place to practice. And one year, the chai shops and the restaurants and cafes had sort of sprawled out to beyond the monastery walls. And um, one year, a travel agency had opened up a shop outside the um, outside the, the monastery gates. We weren't allowed outside the monastery. It was part of the rules of the retreat. And and as they do often in India, they put the loudspeakers on top of the buildings to broadcast whatever's happening outside. It's a great act of compassion, you know, to celebrate whatever they have to everybody, whether it's music or... But this was a travel agency, and they had this recording that they were broadcasting to all the Tibetan pilgrims that walked past in the morning and the evening about different um, bus discount tickets they had. Um, And this loudspeaker had this little tape loop that would go something like, Hello? 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 And then uh, some words in Hindi, Bombay, Calcutta, Darjeeling, Delhi... Bonaris, da 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 da, and then here it rewind. rewind. <laughs> hello, 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 hello. Bonaris, Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi. Hello, hello, hello. Aversion, 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 aversion. Hatred, hatred, hatred. <laughs> Righteous indignation, righteous indignation. How dare they? Don't they know we're meditating? This is a holy, this is a holy village. What are they doing? Selling things. This is so capitalist and India's supposed to be spiritual and homicidal feelings, homicidal feelings. And we would pray for the Indian electricity to, you know, go on a blackout, which it does frequently. So fortunately, we had these great periods of silence, and then it would come back. I'm like, oh no, hello, 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 hello. hello. This was like on day two of a 20-day retreat, you know, eight in the morning. And so we got to practice with a version. Well, I got to practice with a version, a version, a version, a version. And, you know, there's only so long you can keep up your aversion. Like, you know, I kept it up for a few days. You know, it was, you know, it was pretty solid. Um, and after a while, it's like, oh, this is really painful to be that contracted, to, that, to be that braced for the next hello, hello, hello. <laughs> and over time, my mind, as you know, India has this wonderful way of wearing down the mind that likes to control our experience. It's really such a profound teacher in that way. And over time, I just began to relax. And the sound would come, and I just noticed it as sound. You know, that beautiful teaching from Ajahn Chah, it's not... It's not that the sound disturbs us, but we disturb the sound. That it just became sound, it just became noise, background noise. And when the profound teaching in that was that I realized that, you know, I thought my happiness was dependent on the sound disappearing, or me going to, you know, just yank the speaker wire out from the back of the speaker. That's what we think. We think happiness is when we get the conditions how we like them to be. Right? But we can't control our conditions. We can't control people. We can't control reality. So we have to learn how to meet that, those conditions with some equanimity. And that's what mindfulness is a vehicle to. So I realized that, that peace was possible without changing the conditions. It was really transforming the reactivity in my own mind. 
It was a really great teaching. And that's really when the Buddha talks about the third noble truth, that the cessation of suffering is the cessation of grasping, the cessation of resistance, of aversion. Whenever we cease to resist or grasp in the moment, whenever they pass into cessation, there's a moment of space, a moment of peace, a moment of freedom. That's the doorway to liberation, when we can let go in that way. And then next week, uh, it was wedding season. And in (coughs) wedding season in India, they like to have all-night parties. And um, I was braced this time, like, okay, it's just sound. And it was really fun, you know, because I'd I'd seen the way that my mind had caused so much suffering. And this time, you know, it's also more celebratory, wedding, and, you know, but it's going to be pretty loud, and 3 o'clock in the morning gets a little tedious. Um, But again, it was the same teaching. Oh, it's just sound. The suffering is when I contract. It's not to do with the sound, it's to do with what's happening in my own heart. So we can use that with anything that's happening here. Is the suffering really in the object that we're complaining about, or is it in our contraction, in our mind? There's a wonderful story um, from the teacher Gurdjieff, um, who uh, had a community, a spiritual community, and there was one particular person who everybody really despised because he was loud and obnoxious and rude and farted and belched and was just very difficult to be around. Um, and one day uh, he left the community, went back to Paris. And Gurdjieff was really uh, upset about that. And he went all the way, and everybody was really ecstatic that he left. Like, thank God that such obnoxious person's left. And Gurdjieff took the train all the way to Paris, on the train, and you know, probably rode or whatever, wherever he did in those days, uh, and uh, asked the man if he would return to the community. Uh, and the man said, no, 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 it's far too difficult. People don't like me. So, and Gurdjieff said, no, no, I'll pay you to come back. So he paid him to come back, <laughs> and he came back to the community, with, and the community was horrified. It's like, well, you brought this man back, and you paid him, and we hate him. He said, yes, you know, without that, without that seed of turmoil and strife, you don't get to practice. You know, it's when there's a rub, when there's friction, when there's difficulty, when there's strife, you get to look at your own mind. You know, when it's all very easy and tranquil, we don't necessarily grow. It's, it's those places, um, you know, not that we wish on anybody, but when the places of struggle that we really uh, do our deeper work. This is from the Sagadada. This, the, the essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it's acceptable, it's pleasant. If it's not acceptable, it's painful. You will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self, with its desires and fears, enables you to return to your real nature the source of all happiness and peace. So you will find an acceptance of pain or discomfort or displeasure or whatever you're experiencing, a joy which pleasure cannot yield for the simple reason the acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. So I don't wish upon you pain and discomfort, and yet when it arises, it's such a wonderful opportunity to grow. As Jack was talking about last night about growing seeds, 
These are the seeds in which we grow, the struggle. This is from the poet Rilke. He's talking about difficulty and struggle. How dear will you be to me then, you knights of anguish? Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, inconsolable sisters, and surrendering lose myself in your loosened hair? How we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into a bitter endurance to see if they have an end, though they are really seasons of us, our winter enduring foliage. You ever notice that, how you kind of look you look to the bitter end to see if you can see when this thing's going to end rather than actually just be with what's happening. So when we practice here on retreat, it's a training for our lives. There's so many things in our lives we can't control that are struggle, that are difficult. And we might think, well, what's being with my breath and my knee pain got to do with anything? But the whole of our lives and our mind and our reactivity and our possibility of being free in any moment is revealed in whatever's happening here. They're not separate. And just briefly with, um, with aversion, with things that are difficult, what's important to pay attention to is this quality of Vedana that the Buddha talked about. It's a quality of feeling tone. Every, every experience we have has a quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or somewhat in between, somewhat neutral. When something difficult or painful is happening, or somebody in the room is doing something we don't like, prior to the resistance and the agitation, there's the experience of unpleasantness. It's a feeling tone. Just like we f- the unpleasantness of a, of a painful sensation, difficult emotion, the cold wind. It's when we're not mindful, we're not, uh, not attentive to that feeling tone quality is when we react. We're reacting to the fact that that unpleasantness has been triggered within us. So when you're noticing you're reacting, see if you can pay attention to the unpleasant feeling quality in the body, because that's what we're not liking. That's what we're resisting. Emily Dickinson once wrote, I had no time to hate because the world would hinder me and life was not so ample I could finish enmity. So life is short. Do we want to be lost in enmity or do we want to find a way to understand it and be free of it? There's one particular form of aversion I just want to speak to momentarily, which is the the aversion we have to ourselves. So many people uh, have, as I did when I first came to practice, um, a lot of aversion, reactivity, hostility towards ourselves. It's a great form of suffering one of the most common forms of suffering that I see and I work with in people, manifesting through the, through the judge, through the critic, through the I'm not good enough, you're not good enough, your practice isn't good enough, how come everybody else is getting it and sitting like a Buddha and you're the only one who's floundering around thinking about breakfast and lunch and dinner. So we just, I just encourage you to pay attention to the critic. It's another form of thinking it's a form of thinking we give a lot of power to, we give a lot of validity to, we think it's an objective voice of truth. It's just a thought. If we can see that, not buy into its power, name it when it arises. Oh yeah, the judge, this is a, this is a judgment. It's not actually true. It's just a thought. And the meta practice that we introduced today and we will 
be doing over the days is a wonderful antidote to this form of self-hatred and aversion. So, um, the other form of, uh, going back to the, the, the Four Noble Truths, the other primary force in the Second Noble Truth that the Buddha talked about, the causal suffering, the force of the wanting mind, grasping, attachment, craving, longing, thirst, desire, hunger. Anybody noticed anything today? <laughs> A bit of wanting mind, desire for something, craving. Not many. Oh, pretty enlightened crowd. <laughs> it's a pretty common force. You know, it's another way that we don't settle into the moment. It's another way we don't rest with what is. We look outside of ourselves for something, something different, something interesting, something to stimulate us. The comic uh, cartoon that. A couple walking past a shop called Things No One Wants. <laughs> and the woman says to the man, she says, Oh, good, let's just stop in there. Let's just stop in here and get her, get her a little something. <laughs> That's the wanting mind, always looking for something. A better breath, a better meditation, chocolate, whatever you didn't bring. I wish I brought my, my, my comforter, my shawl, my, you know, whatever it is. Notice it in the mind, it usually has the, the phrasing, if only, if only, if only they serve coffee at breakfast, I would have really great meditations in the morning. If only they serve steak, you know, I'd really feel fortified and I wouldn't be sleepy. And if only I could sit like these other peaceful meditators, you know. If only I knew what they were talking about up there, those teachers. <laughs> the, the, the wanting mind, desires that come through the mind, as you may have noticed, are pretty endless. The suffering comes when we get attached, when we think we have to have whatever it is that we're desiring, where we demand reality conform to what we want. I was on a retreat, retreat one year in England, actually in Wales, and um, it was, I was having a hard retreat and uh, was looking for some form of distraction. So um, my, my roommate was sick with a f- with cold and they didn't have any uh, cold medicine at the in, the in the retreat center, so I thought, oh great, I'll hike about five miles down to the local store. It's, 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 this retreat center was really in the middle of nowhere. I'll hike down about five miles to the nearest store and uh, go get them some cough medicine, and maybe they'll have you know some candy and chocolate and you know and a few goodies just to kind of make it a little more interesting. So off I went in my noble bodhisattva, you know, saving all beings, noble cause to help my flatmate, help my roommate with his cold and got to the store and it was a big candy store with lots of chocolate and goodies and I loaded up the chocolate and candy and, you know, got so distracted and, you know, felt very happy and got back and realized, oh, I'd forgotten the cold medicine. (laughs) (laughs) My roommates huddled in bed, sick, looking at me and got some chocolate. (laughs) The force of desire is very strong and it, it creates tunnel vision. We stop you know, we stop seeing the bigger picture. He drew me this picture at the end of the retreat of me in the store um, with this whole, and talking to the, the, the shop assistant and behind the shop assistant there's all these different kinds of cold remedies <laughs> and my pockets are stuffed with chocolate and candy. <laughs> and I'm saying, uh, I'll have a little more chocolate over there. <laughs> so he took it in good spirit. 
So when you're in the, the, the place of wanting, of grasping, of, of, of greed, of hunger, again, notice how that feels. Is it even, no matter how pleasant the thing you're wanting, what's the actual experience like of wanting? It's usually painful. We feel separate. We feel lacking in something. There's a sort of a sense of emptiness, a sense of, I need to be filled from the outside. It's one of the strongest belief systems that fuel the wanting mind is thinking that happiness comes from outside. And the very wanting mind precludes the possibility of peace. Peace and wanting can't coexist in the same mind. Gendon Rinpoche, a wonderful Tibetan teacher, once wrote, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present right here and right now. When we relax this tight fist of grasping, what's here? Is there really anything missing in this moment when we look to our direct experience? Not to our mind, not to the future, not to some expect some imaginary future. You know, we live in this culture that that's, we're so brainwashed with thinking, no, it does exist outside. It does exist in stuff. It does exist in, in uh, getting things. You know, homo shoppians. I, sh- I, I shop, therefore I am. <laughs> Someone brought the latest copy of the Vogue magazine ahead. 863 pages. And 860 of those pages were ads for stuff that was unaffordable. <laughs> and stuff I couldn't wear either. It was a very distressing experience looking through it. So this ad I love to share with people about, um, you know, with all the stuff that arises that obscures uh, basic nature, uh, it's really important to have compassion. You know, we, we, we didn't ask to be born with a strong power of greed and hatred. You know, it's not what we signed up for, but it's what, what happens in the human psyche. So it's really important to hold all these things without judgment, but with some kindness, with some compassion. So this is my favorite ad. It's from Outside Magazine. And it's a picture of a young guy with all the stuff that he might want, all the stuff that a young man could you know, possibly fantasize having on a meditation retreat. His dog and his kayak and his scuba and his golf clubs and his guitar and his skis, his snowboard, his computer. Uh, his baseball, his mountain bike, and a big pickup truck. And it says, Spence, who's meditating like this. For some reason, all he adds, they meditate like that. I don't know, it's kind of hot on the arms after a while. But anyhow. Spence put a new twist on a null philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger. (laughs) So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. (laughs) He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, (laughs) which makes him one happy soul. So there you go. There's a meditation ad and there's a co- the Ford Compact pickup and you're set. So we, we live, we're gripped in this cultural myth. You know, it sort of besieges us. It oozes out of every pore of our culture. 
that we'll be happy if we get, if we have, if we become, if we grow, if we, you know, bigger is better. And intellectually we, we might know, you know, or through our practice we might know, but that's actually not how it is. But yet the force of the mind is still gripped in that. The wanting, you know. How many times have you caught yourself wanting, desiring? You know, oh, I just, if I just, maybe I can just nip out to the store. You know, maybe I can find that old chocolate from my old, you know, she must be in my suitcase somewhere. Or we look around and we think, well, I don't have any chocolate, but maybe I can get, you know, get, have some sexual desire, a little fantasy going, you know, have a little romance, you know, with a passionate romance where we fall in love with somebody we've never even talked to or have no idea <laughs> who they are or, you know, where they're from. And, you know, they, we find them sitting next to us in the dining room. We think, oh, it must mean something. <laughs> it's the second time this week. We have the same kind of breakfast. You know, I'm sure we're compatible. <laughs> we both put that tahini sort of globby stuff on our granola. I know it's a sign. I mean, you have this whole fantasy of living a life of you know eating granola and living in a cabin in the woods and living happily ever after and or not. You know, suddenly you realize mm, maybe ten years down the line you might get a bit bored and you get divorced and. Choose somebody else. So what's important with the grasping mind, with the wanting mind, is to notice the state of deficiency that it causes. To notice the sense of emptiness. When we believe that happiness that exists outside in something, we move from feeling whole to feeling separate, to feeling incomplete. That is suffering. That's where we turn to things, turn to some experience, some, some object. Rumi says, how long will we fill our pockets like children with dirt and stones? How long will we fill our pockets like children with dirt and stones? Let the world go. Let the world go. Holding it, we never know ourselves, never are airborne. And what happens when we get what we want? You say we find that piece of chocolate or you find that meditation moment of bliss, or you find, you know, whatever it is, doesn't last. Maybe it lasts for a little bit, maybe we try to hold, hold on to it, and what happens when we hold on, hold, hold on to it? it? It disappears quicker than the blink of an eye. As George, George Bernard Shaw once said, the two disappointments in life, one is not getting what we want, and the second is getting what we want. As Ryokin said, truly I love this life of seclusion. Then why do I pine away for a visit from friends? And why when they do come, why is it that all, if, all that I can think about is how to get away back into the woods, back to my life of seclusion? And the Buddha, whoever in the world overcomes desire so hard to transcend will find that suffering falls away like drops of water falling from a flower. So pay attention to this wanting mind. Pay attention to how the wanting, the grasping, obscures the very thing that we're paying attention to. We don't have to get rid of the object, we're just letting go of the attachment to it. As Chalopa said to Naropa, it's not the outer objects that bind us, 
but our inner attachment to them. And again, just like with, the, with aversion, with, 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 um, with pleasantness, with desire, noticing the pleasant feeling that we're seeking, a pleasantness that comes when we think about an object that we're desiring. So um, I've run out of time. So um, just a couple of closing words. Um, you know, what, all the things that we offer up here, they're, they're offered as an invitation not as dogma, for you to, to look into your own experience to see if it's true. And you'll also probably forget everything that we've ever said. And that's why we keep talking up here. The reminders. We all need to hear this. We remember, we forget. Dharma teachings are really reminding us of what we really already know. What we know in our deepest heart, and our deepest, in our deepest wisdom. Of all the ways that we leave ourselves and the ways that we can return to our true nature to peace, to wholeness, to completeness, to our true home. And over time, these obstacles will become less gripping, less impactful, less uh, seductive. We get less caught in those appearances that pull us away from ourselves, out of ourselves. And we learn more confidently and more easily and easefully to rest in the truth of who we are, to know that peace is already right here. So let's just sit for a moment. Notice as you sit, can you meet this experience just as it is? And if there's resistance or obstructions or obstacles, can you meet those just as they are? This talk was given by Mark Coleman at Yucca Valley on April 15, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.